quite often I am triggered personally, but because it isn't my my grief, I just feel it's really important um, to not make to make sure that my clients don't have to look after me, right? So like that would be the worst. Imagine that. Imagine that bad funeral director. She turns up and she's like sobbing, and you got to comfort her. Oh, that would be me. That would be me. I couldn't even do this. I'd feel so bad for them. I'd start to cry. That would make an amazing comedy skit, though, wouldn't it? Oh, oh yeah. No, oh yeah. And welcome back to The C Word, Kiwis Talk About Cancer, hosted by me, Helen King, and Belinda Tran-Lawrence. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and rate us on iTunes or follow us on Spotify. And share amongst your friends. We want to get out to as many people as we can. This episode, we're talking about somewhat of a taboo, especially within our pretty repressed Anglo-Saxon history. Talking about death is often avoided, particularly when you've had a cancer diagnosis like Belinda and I have. No one wants to acknowledge the possibility of dying. But the reality is everyone dies. No matter how much we want to try and escape aging, our lives will come to an end eventually. So over the next hour, we're going to be talking to two women who deal with death on a day-to-day basis. Let's get on with the show. To take Belinda's mind off the fact that she was facing another surgery on Thursday, we sat down in the morning over Zoom with Takaha local Laura Manson. Laura, like us, is a breast cancer survivor and she's a funeral director. So we thought, who better to sit down and talk to about what she's learned about death? Laura's first experience of death was the death of her father when she was a young child. What she remembers of that time was that it wasn't spoken about and she didn't really have the opportunity to to say goodbye to her father in a, a way that would allow her to have the closure and to process the grief that she had. In her work as a funeral director, she holds the philosophy of getting the family as involved as she can with the process because she believes that if they're involved and that they can they can touch their loved one and that they can help prepare them for that f- final stage before they have to say goodbye, then it can help start processing those very raw emotions and the, the deep grief that we feel when we lose someone. So when we sat down to talk to her, we, we asked her about that. And it got Belinda and I thinking about our first memories of the death of a loved one. The only sort of major death that I've had in my life was my grandma when I was seven. And I care this. She had been looking after me that day because I was homesick. And I had just read George's Marvelous Medicine. And if anyone has read that, he has an awful grandma who he makes a potion for and and feeds it to her and something happens to her. So when I woke the next morning and my mum told me, and I just remember she told me, and oh, it's going to make me cry. But she burst into the most, you know, like grief-laden tears that her mum had died. And as a child, I thought... 
You thought it was your fault. I thought I'd killed her, and I I know that sounds so silly, but I know for mum, um, I think she she um, dressed her and things, but we didn't get to see her um, after she died. And I, when I when I read that, oh sorry, when I listened to that, I thought I really like that. I like that idea that we get to sort of sit and be and actually let those feelings come through. I definitely yeah. think that that does make things a lot easier. Particular, I mean, death is never easy, and some of the circumstances around some deaths make it that much harder. Um, I lost my father when I was a teenager, and he died at home, and my mum and I were caring for him, and we were the only people who were there. Long and strange story, which I won't get into, but being part of that um and we didn't we didn't even call the ambulance service or anything straight away um and I won't go so far as to say it was a lovely situation it wasn't um in some ways it was a horrific situation however I do think that it helped me I think in some ways I have found that easier than my siblings did who were not there, who did not see him in the last days, I think I processed things better because I was there. And because, like you said, I witnessed him departing in lots of ways. He'd been such a huge figure in my life with such influence and it helped me seeing him leave and seeing his body without him in it. It, it has a profound effect for people. And you're right, there is an element of um, horror sometimes. Um, not not horror like we think of in movies, but it's sort of like a soul shock. But that, that shock is going to come anyways. And so when you can be with your person, mm. um, yeah... You can process it better. You can. And Helen, what you were saying about your, you as a child with your grandma, I that is really normal. It's not silly. I, little children absolutely think sometimes that it's their fault or they think that they have magical powers. Um, yeah, it's so I, I'm doing a course on grief, and um, right during that age, it, yeah, People, children think, oh, maybe this happened because I did something, or um, maybe if I could do something, it will reverse it, or, yeah. So so be really compassionate to little Helen, because um, that is a, a completely normal experience for a child losing um, a loved grandma. And even I remember when I was 10, and, and bef- when my dad died, I... I remembered having this dream that I dreamt, you know, like a maybe a few months before that he died. And because I dreamt that he died, then I felt like maybe I'd made him die. And, um, yeah, the kids, the kids go through a lot when they lose someone. Mm. Uh, and often you're right. Like the parent is experiencing their own level of grief and, um, our little people are kind of come along as um, they. We accompany our adults in the in this world, and 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 adults can forget 
about the little people or or think that a lot is going over their head, but actually kids are kids are really onto it, processing, soaking it all up, wondering, trying to make sense of it. And so yeah. that's what you we're doing, Helen. You were going like, what happened? Grandma was here yesterday and now she's not. And I've just read this book. And I just yeah. made this potion. <laughs> yeah. I mean, as Helen said, we're trying to, we need to talk about things particularly for children, because children are understanding the world. They're figuring out how the world works at that age, and death is a really big part of that. And if we don't talk about death with them, then they're going to figure it out themselves and possibly come up with erroneous solutions. My One of my children, my youngest, she, when she was three, kind of between two and four, but mostly when she was three, she was obsessed with death, and we still do not know why. Um, she would go around telling people that family members had died or wondering if someone was going to die. The worst one was when I had a good friend come up to me on the street and say, oh, I'm so sorry, I just heard. I'm like, what? What did you just hear? Oh, you've got cancer. And I'm like, no. <laughs> no. Prophetic, no. Yeah. <laughs> No, at that point, I did not have cancer, but my three-year-old daughter had been going around telling everybody I had and that I was going to die because that was her figuring it out. Whoa, yeah. Can can I? Wow. (laughs) (laughs) She's fine now, honestly. (laughs) But we talked about it, you know. I I didn't tell her that was a terrible thing to do. Yeah, she did. I wonder if she ever has thought, oh, no, I... I manifested mum's, hopefully not. Um, I must ask her. I doubt it. She's 16 now and fairly onto it, but mm, good point. I should ask her. I, I want to mention how how I told my kids I had cancer because um, I had a, I had like a, Hazel must have been, she's 17 now, so she was 10, good. And um, Zoe's 13 now, so she was um five or five or five and a half or six or something. Is that right? My math is terrible. <laughs> <laughs> we'll move past my math and I'll get to this story. Um, so I've been on the phone. I hadn't told the kids that I had cancer, um, but I've been, you know, how in that lead up to um, getting your, your diagnosis, probably there's lots of whispered phone calls to, to friends and moms and a lot of, Ooh, don't know what's happening. And so when I thought, okay, t- now's the time to tell the kids. So I brought them into the lounge and I sat them down and I said, um, hey, lovey, you know how, you know how last uh, month you had a, a place in your tooth that had um, a cavity in it and how we had to go to the dentist and um, how the, do- the dentist removed the bad part of the tooth and, and patched up the tooth. Um, well, mom has something in her breast and it's called cancer. And the doctor is going to, um, oh, sorry, I, I, I went a bit fast. Um, I said, so mom's got something in her breast and my, my little, my eldest one said, is it cancer? And I said, yes, Hazel, it's cancer. Are you going to die? I, I said, uh, I don't think so. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe, but you know, it was like here I was trying to cotton wool this news for my kids and somehow they had been um 
like eavesdropping from the back bedrooms and, and putting this whole big picture together. And so for me, trying to explain it to them, um, my eldest was just like cut straight to the point. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> the tooth analogy, yeah, that was a nice analogy, but <laughs> it didn't really work. <laughs> and, and the littler one was just kind of wide-eyed and shocked and, mm. yeah, wow. Far out. That, um, I am really curious because, I mean, Belinda and I are a similar sort of time away from our diagnoses and, you know, I feel like it's still, I'm, I'm still processing a lot of the trauma and grief and all the stuff that sort of, you know, has attached itself on me from that experience. Um, but, you know, you're you're seven years on and because um, I, I don't know, for me, one of the first things was when it was diagnosis and my head was like, holy shit, am I going to die? Um, and that, that was the real fear. So I'd love to know what where you're at seven years later, but also because you, you sort of, you're, you deal with death, day, you know, for your day-to-day sort of stuff. Yeah, wow. Well, um, so seven years on, I've, I've been through so much in, in, since diagnosis to now, and lots of good things and lots of hard things and lots of massive, massive changes. Um, and I... I remember um, when I was diagnosed, one of my friends was like, oh, you're going to rock this. And uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was like, no, this isn't something to be happy about. Um, <laughs> but um, because I actually thought I was going to die for sure um, when, when I was first diagnosed. And then I realized as time went on, actually, we're all going to die. We're all you know, we just don't know when. We don't know by what means. And um, after a few years, um, it got to be this real challenge to, to fight cancer, but fight cancer in a different way. It was in this mental health way. It was like, I am not going to let cancer take another day out of my yeah. life. It had yeah. all that time already, like all those days of worry, all those days of radiation and of surgery and recovery. and And then... You know, after, I think it, it was about five, not five years, I'd say maybe it was about four years past diagnosis that that I, I just, I thought, man, this thing has the potential to, oh, has the potential to ruin um, days that, I, that it doesn't deserve. It doesn't deserve every day. Yeah. Oh, I so, res- yes, 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 so that. It, we don't have to give any more to it than it has already taken. Yeah. Yeah. And one, this is off topic, and I would love to talk more about the funeral directing, but I want to say about how I found my cancer, because it does tie in with what we were talking about with the children earlier and with our experiences as children and losing, losing our loved ones. Um, when I was diagnosed, um, basically, I... I didn't notice any lump in my breast and I didn't, um, I was 41 years old. And what happened was over a period of about six months, um, I had these random thoughts pop into my head. I should get a mammogram. It's very bizarre. And the third time that it happened, I was watching the show that um, was done by Mike King and, 
it, it was on mental health and there was a beautiful woman on there and she was talking about her breast cancer experience and I was watching her and and the thought came in this third time really powerfully I need to get a mammogram and I still didn't actually want to listen to that inner voice I, I remember going into town the next day there's this op shop and this older lady Nancy works there and she's a breast cancer survivor she's in her late 70s now and um, I said to Nancy Nancy, I just, I keep having this thought that I need to get a mammogram. And my goodness, this little, nice little lady, she said, well, what are you waiting for? <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, oh, my gosh. And I couldn't go to the GP. I thought, I can't go to the GP and just say, order me a mammogram. I've had three clear and distinct thoughts that I need to have one. So I, I just rang up Pacific Radiation, and I booked a mammogram, and I turned up on the day, and it was about, a, at that time, it was only, it was less than $200. I think it was $144 to pay for a private mammogram, and I'm so lucky that I, that I could do that um, because they found calcs, and within three days, I had a call back. And I felt so guilty. I felt like I'd um, gone looking for it and found it. It was almost like instead of responding to finding this cancer early and thinking, yay, um, I, I really turned in on myself. It was like, oh, you know, like I felt like I'd manifested this damn breast cancer. There, I said it. And I didn't. Oh, I did weird. It. Yes, we are. That's so weird. I did the same. I felt like I kind of had to. Yes, because about six months before, um, I had to have a um, hysteroscopy DNC to check out um, some bleeding that I'd been having. And she found, uh, oh, because in in a... um, ultrasound that found thickening in my lining and I freaked out because my mother had had um, uh, uterine cancer and that was a um, symptom of it and one of the high risks for uterine cancer is early puberty and both my mother and I both went through puberty quite early I was about 10 or 11 and so I was um, really really scared that I had had that I'd got cancer and then I just it just stayed with me this thought of you know I'll I'll get cancer and it was I don't know it was weird and I don't know whether maybe it was because I'd been having such a stressful time um there was this part of me that thought have I brought this on myself (laughs) yeah it yeah I gotta say you guys are strange (laughs) (laughs) I just thought Oh, shit. How the hell? (laughs) Good. (laughs) I think, yeah, yeah, I think Helen and my brains are pretty, we, I think they work quite similarly, if I can say that. Yeah. (laughs) Or you. (laughs) (laughs) Or Helen, yes. Laura, can I ask you a question? Going a little bit back to your funeral director work, um, you are obviously someone who's quite an empathetic person um, and obviously a very caring person, which I'm sure is a real positive in that, in your work. But I also wonder, like, 
I don't think of myself as quite such a hugely empathetic person. I I'm, I might be a terrible person, but I did not cry when watching your video. It was beautiful, but I did not cry. Yep. However, I can't even go to the funeral of someone I don't even know. I can't make it through their funeral without crying. How do you manage to support families going through this and not let your own feelings intrude on that? Mm. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm getting good at it. <laughs> it. Because it's not my person, so I can, I can stand beside people and, and help them and just sort of hold space. And then quite often I am triggered personally, but because it isn't my, my grief... Um, I just feel it's really important um, to not make, to make sure that my clients don't have to look after me. Right. So like, that would be the worst. Imagine that, imagine that bad funeral director. She turns <laughs> up and she's like sobbing and you got to comfort her. Oh, that would be me. I couldn't even do this. I'd feel so bad for them. I'd start to cry. That would make an amazing comedy skit though, wouldn't it? Oh, oh yeah. no, oh, yeah. no joke. I did this once. Okay, this, this this is outing myself as a terrible person. A friend, this is quite a few years ago, a friend's teenage son was killed in a really tragic accident. Um, and, of course, local community, the first thing I did was go around there. They were good friends. Um, and, you know, I was like, okay, I've got it together. I've got it together. It had only happened the previous day or the previous night. And the dad answered the door. This family is so completely gorgeous. The dad answered the door and took one look at me. Look, I'm always crying talking about it. And I just burst into tears. And he put his arms around me and went, it'll be okay. And I'm like, I'm supposed to be here supporting you, not you supporting me. And thankfully, this family was so gorgeous that, they were just, they were very accepting of that. But yes, I do. When it, As soon as I saw your video and talked to you, I thought, how do you do that? How do you not cry when you're giving someone's eulogy? Oh, okay. You're not a terrible person, first of all. Like, you weren't the funeral directors and you're a friend. And we cannot help but imagine uh walking in our friend's shoes, like when, when, especially you having your own children um, and them losing their beloved child, oh, you cannot help but feel the, the grief and the pain alongside them. Uh, and not everybody actually goes by the house to, um, to be with people. So right there, you're a good friend, actually, Belinda, because sometimes people have these tragedies happen and then uh, the friends head for the mountains. It's a bit like like when you get a cancer diagnosis. Suddenly there's people there that you never expected to see in your life, and then the people you think will be there for you, they don't know how to deal with it, and they hightail it. Very true, yeah. Right? So um, the process of grief, it, it's like in our in our culture, we, we do things kind of differently, but, you know, um, older cultures like like. Jewish um, families, 
they receive guests and and it's it's quite a normal thing for the neighbors and the friends and the family to come in and, and weep and cry and, and it shows that you actually love that person and it shows that you love the family but for some reason our western sort of culture we really try to button everything up um so what you showed your friends when you got there was your intense love for them, your your empathy, and um, yeah, in your braveness that you're willing to walk beside them in their loss of their beautiful child. Um, so I don't know how I don't cry when I do funerals and eulogies because before I became a funeral director, I – I always say grief is really sticky, and every single funeral I would go to, I was just like you. I would be sobbing in the back, and I was reliving um, all the losses that I'd suffered throughout my life. And um, I think the change happened for me in the actual funeral work. So the first funeral that I ever took was from my grandmother. I loved her very deeply. And when she died, she was a hundred years old and I used the little bit of money that she left for me to open the funeral home. So, um, and, and when I did her funeral in America, when I took this funeral, I never even knew I wanted to be a funeral director at that point. So, um, all I knew was that if somebody was going to speak for my grandma, it was going to be me, and I wanted to give her the best send-off ever. And so I spent a couple weeks, um, you know, getting over there and and writing what I was going to say and writing her eulogy and writing the newspaper notices. And that was when I did my crying, and that was when I did my processing. And that's the same with my clients. Um, because I live in a really small town, I tend to know every single person who passes, and often I've known them in life, and so I do feel a sense of grief. But I, I spend so much time recording and getting and, and facilitating the information for the service. And then when I come home, I do the writing, and I, I put together the service sheets, and I look at the pictures of that person the whole time, and I listen to songs that might be appropriate, and I do all my crying. No, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, Oh, it's amazing. It's quite beautiful. It is. And see, for the families, they're also having a a similar experience at their home when they're gathering the photos for the slideshow or they're gathering the speakers or the poems they're they're doing some of their processing there that's like it's like dipping the foot in the the icy water then the then to the knee in the icy water and quite often for people um that week before the service or that time leading up to the service is such a busy week of doing in preparation for their loved one's send-off that 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 for them um by the time they get to the funeral they're quite um, exhausted and um, I, w- I want to say wrung out by grief. Maybe, you know, they're, they're still feeling their grief, but a lot of the funeral goers that are turning up, this is the first time that they've confronted that this person has passed. And so that's why um, you'll often see, well, 
I don't need to elaborate on that. I guess that's that's why yeah. when you turn yeah, up at a service, you have a big. That makes sense. I've yeah. never thought of it that way. That completely makes sense. Yeah. Your your process is, and listening to you talk about it is just so amazingly beautiful. Can um, I don't know if you ever do funerals anywhere else, but I'm going to make a will and say that you have to be my funeral director. I would love to fly up in 55 years to be your funeral director. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm going to be really old, by the, but I, I have every intention of making it to 100. So, yes, you're Me on. Me too. Yeah. Oh, man, imagine what trouble the three of us would be as, as little old ladies on the bench out in front of the shop. Yeah, we'd be dangerous <laughs> old ladies. <laughs> I'm going to whack people with my stick. No <laughs> joke. My grandmother used to do exactly that in her rest home. No one would sit at the table with her because she was so mean. She used to whack other people. But, hey, she lived till 99. Oh, bless her heart. I love it. Yes, wow. she had a feisty spirit. Yeah. Hey, Laura, thank you so much for joining us. It has been an honor and a pleasure to hear more about your story and more about the amazing work you do. Um, so thank you for, and come back, come back another time. We'll yeah, please. More. We want to I talk would, to you more. I would love to talk to you two more. It's been a real treat to get to have this conversation. I just want to say one more thing before I go. Um I just got a call. So this is the hardest thing in my work, um, and this is going to be a bit personal. But So I was diagnosed at 41, and then my friend Ginny was diagnosed um, a little bit after me. And um, we had the same diagnosis, and she's in the process of uh, passing right now. Wow. I know. I just... um, I've done some pre-planning with her, um, and I got a call from her husband this morning. And so, um, this is going to be this is going to be hard. This is going to be a, a really um, big challenge for me. But I also um, I feel it's not about me, obviously, but but about me. I feel honored that I get to help my friend in this final part of her time on Earth. The term palliative care comes from the Latin pallia, which means to cloak. Its practical origins extend back to the 4th century, where hospices were places where weary travellers could find respite from their travels. Dr. Sham Shah is a palliative care doctor working for the Auckland DHB. When I caught up with her, I found out that palliative care is not just for people who are at the end of their life. The role of the palliative care doctor is to ensure their patient is living the best quality of life that they can. Absolutely, yeah. So it is very much dependent on the need of that person. It's not about prognosis. Yeah. Life expectancy. It's about what, what do I as a person who has a serious illness need and what support do I need um and and that's it really that is a fundamental question 
I feel like I've had this amazing sort of um, moment of, are you kidding me? <laughs> because because I, we, I should say that um, we actually met um, last year when there was an amazing um, an amazing workshop brought to New Zealand by yourself. Mm. And that was what it was all about, was the, was the healing circle. Yeah. In um, the idea that actually for someone who has gone through a major illness um such as cancer or you know any of the other things we can face that we we do need to be supported and look after ourselves yeah in in a whole um yeah in that holistic way yeah and so it it sort of amazes me that that where is that (laughs) (laughs) How how does one access? Palliative care or the the whole person approach? Yeah, I just uh, just sort of thinking because I I know for me I I felt like I was quite vulnerable. I mean, everyone is, but I I had um, I guess some extra vulnerabilities um, around my you know mental health and also um, just I guess you know you you are facing your mortality yeah. in a really um significant way and i and i just think um although in so many ways the care was amazing and i was um looked after very well mm. i do sometimes think there was that element missing of you're treating a whole person mm. and you do get to this point where you think I'm not just a collection of symptoms. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I totally agree with you. And um, and there is more and more evidence, I think, that, um, I, I mean, uh, there is a, a, a study, again, another study done by <laughs> Kelly Turner, who um, did a great PhD looking at... Um, you know what? What helps us um, heal? Yeah, those people where the diagnosis of cancer heal, and and I don't, I don't necessarily mean cure, but I mean mm. heal mm. within. And um, and what was fascinating about her study, and I I would recommend actually I read her book, which was mind blowing, and mm. I definitely recommend it to anyone who has a diagnosis of cancer um, called Radical Hope. Mm. And and what was clear from that book is how um, there are, she, she basically um, found there were 10 main themes, 10 main factors that people um, uh, practiced in, in some way. Mm. And uh, only three are physical which yeah. is the even more interesting thing. So, you know, diet, exercise, supplements, herbs. Mm. Um, you know, we, we kind of a standard. We, we know eating well and exercising is good for us and it's good for our bodies. Yes. Um, but the other seven, um, now that is another, <laughs> another ball game wow. because there's all the psychological, spiritual um, work, the inner work, which is hard work, you know. It's really hard work, and um, in a way, harder than in some ways, and the exercise and the and so on. And and you know, 
you, you might relate to some of this, but it was things like releasing um, difficult emotions. Yeah. Yeah. It was things like um, finding purpose or meaning. Mm. Um, I'm just trying to remember some of the other ones. Um, intuition, listening to your own intuition, your own kind of inner wisdom. Um, and I very much come from the premise that, you know, I, I think every person I see is the expert. I'm In a way, I'm not the expert, but you are an expert in terms of your body, yourself, your being, and I'm here really to help help you and, and be alongside you and in that journey and support you through that. Wow. wow. I don't know if that makes sense. <laughs> I'm, I'm just blown away by it because I, it's really funny because I was going to, one of my questions was, what are some of the misconceptions you come across about <laughs> being a paleontologist? <laughs> I'm sitting here going, I have all the misconceptions about what you do. Well, well, I mean, and it's not just, um, I guess it's, it's not just, you know, I guess public, but even healthcare professionals have, quite a few misconceptions about palliative care. Yeah. Um, I mean, I teach medical students, and I, I always say, and I always say to medical students, that every, I really believe everything starts with the self. Yes. And so unless we feel comfortable to kind of look at our own mortality and talk about death and dying, it's it's hard to, to do that with someone else. Mm. Um, and I always say death in a way... It's a bit like sex. Sorry. <laughs> you know, it's probably one of the two major taboos in society. Yeah. yeah. And um, and yet, you know, talk about sex doesn't mean you get pregnant. No. And similarly, talk about death doesn't mean you're gonna you're going die. to die. <laughs> so. Belinda and I have both listened to this podcast recently, and it's, yeah. it's so good. It's called Dying for Sex. Oh, really? Yes. And it is about a woman who has um, terminal breast cancer and her and her best friend basically have these um, conversations. And she, um, so Molly um, Kochan, she has the incurable cancer and basically when it comes back and they find out it's incurable, she um, leaves her marriage and basically goes on this sexual awakening mm. which is just it I, I can't do it justice explaining it so everyone must go and listen to it but the other thing that I found so um just quite profound and um almost like a privilege to be witness to is that um the last two episodes are really around Molly's um Molly dying Mm. and you're right one of the conversations they have is about how do you feel about your impending death and it's funny because when you you hear that as a listener you think oh oh (laughs) you can't mention that but we I mean and they make such a good point that we are all going to die it's unfortunately some of us um in situations might know how or what is going to be the cause of it and um but we yeah we do not talk about these things openly no No, and and yeah and yet you're absolutely right I think 
there's Mark Twain who said there are three things guaranteed in life, birth, death and taxes. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, um, but you're absolutely right. I, I, I mean, and, and actually, you're right. It, it is the, the one, you know, it's a hundred percent success rate. <laughs> and, uh, um, no, no, no let ups there. Yeah. But, um, but uh, I guess, I mean, it's inter- interesting. I guess in some ways also, I was talking to a friend of mine about this recently. And in a way, also by knowing, I mean, COVID in, one, in, one, in some ways has kind of exposed us to a little bit of that, that mm-hmm. sort of uncertainty, you know, cert- uncertainty about life. I mean, there are no guarantees in a way. No. And, and actually... There is something about having that awareness of that uncertainty and and of the possibility of of death, mm-hmm. and in some ways also allows you to live more fully in the now because you just you know I guess none of us know. I kind um, of feel like the general public are now getting an insight to what it's like to be a chemo yeah. patient. Yeah, <laughs> I really yeah, do. Really, yeah. It, yeah, so this this does bring me to, to something that I, I think would be really, um, I just think, beneficial and interesting to talk about is mm-hmm. is end-of-life planning because I know that that is part yeah. of what you do. And yeah. I think yeah, you've hit some of it already about mm-hmm. how do you want to be, how do you want things to, to mm-hmm. sort of go in those steps. So uh, talk mm-hmm. us through uh, what that actually entails. Yeah, so, I mean, I guess the term that's used in New Zealand is called advanced care planning. Mm. But in a nutshell, what it really is, is an opportunity for for all of us, you know, whether you're well or whether you have a, a serious illness, to in some ways write down and be able to express who you are and what's important to you and how you want to be cared for if you became suddenly unwell mm. and you weren't able to speak for yourself. So in a way, it's your voice when you don't have a voice. Because I don't know about you, Helen, but I'm quite particular about certain <laughs> things. And I'm quite particular about things I do want and they're very particular about things I don't want. Yes. And yes. How, how I want to be cared for. And also from a spiritual perspective as mm. well, you know, what is important to me spiritually, how I view the world, mm. my beliefs, my values, you know, I want those to be honoured. Yeah. You know, at, at any stage of my life and particularly and even more so at death. Mm. As I'm nearing the end of my life. And so, um, you know, have an opportunity to discuss that with the people you care, you care about, your friends, your family, so that you're all on the same page. And you have your kind of your allies, your buddies who are there, you know, your tribe pull <laughs> you in this and your wishes. Um, and so it's all written down and and so it's really clear. And then it's almost like, you know, you do a will, you've done it, and, it you know, it's it's just such a weight off your shoulders in a way. Yeah. It's quite a hard thing to do. I mean, I, I have one. 
Mm. And I'm I'm healthy. Yeah. Much wood. Um, but I have one because you know, I, I, I used to love long haul flights and I was thinking, Oh God, what if something <laughs> happened, you know? And um and I come, you know, I know certainly in my family there's probably a high chance of conflict if anything were to happen. So, you know, I, I guess I just want to um you know have yeah. that really clearly so that yeah. there's no kind of what ifs or or you know what would Sham, what would Sham would have wanted. You know, it's it's clear what I would want. Yeah. Um, so yeah. So essentially so in, in a nutshell, um anyone can do it. You can go online to the advanced care planning. You just Google Advanced Care Plan New Zealand and it pops up mm-hmm. and you can fill your own in. It's yours. Um, it's totally voluntary. It's not mandatory. Um, but I, I really thoroughly recommend it. And, and the nice thing is once you've been through that process yourself, then, you know, you, you, you know what it's about and you can discuss and share it with your friends and so on and, and your parents and, and, mm. and have, what have you, um, and so the first part of it is very much about you, about who you are as a person, what's important to you, what do you love, um, what are your beliefs, what are your values, what's important, to, what's important. And the next section is more about perhaps maybe um, more around sort of life prolonging treatments that you may or may not want. Um, mm. And also how you would like to discuss um uh things like uh prognosis and so on how much information do you like to have yeah or how much information would you like to be shared with you because again everyone is different and shared with your family yeah and your preferences around decision making so it's so it's all put together in a nice little pdf (laughs) You you can update if you want every year or whatever you want to do with it and um and ideally shared with your your gp and little yeah. team so everyone yeah everyone's in the same the same page it's really interesting and i think it comes down to the to how uncomfortable i think we are about talking about death and our yeah. our demise i mean we all like to think that we'll live to a ripe old age but you know nothing is ever guaranteed and I think when you've had a cancer diagnosis you sort of you know that um very well and it I was I think thinking um as you've been talking about the people I've met who have a you know an incurable diagnosis Mm -hmm. and I've always found it quite fascinating and actually almost reassuring that they do often have such a sense of peace about them I don't Yeah, it's it's really interesting, and for me, that's been quite um, a good thing to experience because mm-hmm. I I have to say, you know, having a cancer diagnosis was very very frightening, mm-hmm. and um, because yeah, I mean, it's no one sort of expects it, especially at a young age. So it's I think the more we kind of talk about this stuff, the the less fear there is. Yeah, absolutely. Because uh, I mean, I, what. what I mean, fear stands for false evidence appearing real. I think <laughs> but it, it's true. I, I guess you know we, um, 
often the fears we have in our minds, um, you know, often don't aren't as serious as we we think, and and I think to be around fear around dying. Um, I mean, when I have conversations with people, um, it means interesting more, more often, more than often. It's not so much. I think it was actually. I think it's um, oh, the director, film director Woody. Oh, I've gone his name now. But um, he talks about how he's not so much afraid of dying, but he's afraid of of um, how he gets there. You know, actually. yeah, yeah. Um, and I think it is the fear of pain or yes. or suffering in yes. some way. Absolutely, yeah. Which I think, yeah, so. I, I think we, we can all relate to, mm. without doubt. Yeah. And, and that's where, you know, that reassurance um, that, you know, there are, there's so many things we can do to ensure that people um, are comfortable, that, we, that, um, that you're comfortable, that not in pain, and minimizing the suffering um, as much as possible. Mm. Um, not only for themselves, but for their families and so on. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Hey, it has been so fascinating talking to you. I feel like I walked in with a whole lot of misconceptions. <laughs> <laughs> and now I'm my head is going, why doesn't everyone have a palliative <laughs> care doctor when we go through cancer? I just, I, I strongly think that there we need... There needs to be more on offer to nurture us and help us even afterwards. But you know, that's that's a whole other conversation. Yeah. But yeah. um yeah, I think it is it's so interesting um what you offer in mm. in such a um I guess a very Western health model. Mm. Yeah, and um you're absolutely right, and I guess um you know, I feel, I feel, I guess I feel really um, honoured in a way as well and privileged in, in doing what I do because, um, I don't know, I, I, I guess we see birth as a very sacred time. Yes. And and actually I think death is equally a very sacred time as well. Mm. And just like we have sort of midwives and doulas and so on, you know, yeah. having that person or your team of people alongside you is really important. Um, yeah. And hmm, we, I guess we, we learn a lot as well. Yeah. And um, as you say, in terms of how people can be so accepting and um, at peace and, yeah, and face death with such grace. Mm. Incredible, yeah. listening to another episode of the c word we broadcast every sunday live at 11:55 a.m on auckland's 104.6 planet fm or online anytime at planetaudio.org.nz forward slash the c word but dear listeners we are on a mission 
We need your help to get the C word onto the new and noteworthy section on iTunes. We are available across all the major podcast apps, but we really want to get the word out there about the C word. But we need your help to do this. So all you need to do is subscribe to us on iTunes. Give us a rating, maybe even a review if you're feeling really generous. Then send us a picture of the subscription and we'll give you a shout out on the show. And you're going to go into a prize pool for some pretty awesome prizes. So listen out for the announcements on that. If you don't have iTunes, that's not a problem because you can actually get us on Spotify and we would love you to give us a follow on there. Please help us out. We want to spread the C word, which you guys know is cancer, not COVID or any other nasty C words. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next week.
Thank you.